You know, sometimes people ask me, how do I come up with sermons, and, and what's the process that I use every once in a while, and, you know, what, how do you come up with the ideas, you know, how do you prep, and this and that. And I was reading, there is a fairly famous author who now has become a teacher of writing, and he says there's two kinds of writers. There's outliners, and there's pantsers. And by pantser, he means someone who writes by the seat of their pants. And so, yeah, now you kind of get the idea here, you know? Are you like the, the OCD kind of writer where everything is mapped out and you got all the stickers all on the walls and everything? Or are you kind of writing and see what happens? Well, I'm more of a pantser myself, you know? I have a general idea of where I'm going, but it kind of takes on a life of its own in the process, whether I'm writing or whether I'm working on, on, a, on a message. And so I've heard... Legend says that some pastors actually sometimes have their whole year planned out in terms of what they're going to do for the entire year. Now, this allows the marketing department in the church to really be able to do the graphics and all the great things. I am going week by week on this. You know, what I really like to do is to see what the week brings because you just never know what's going to show up. And lately, my weeks have been like a box of chocolates. I really don't know what's going to show up. There's been, they've been so full. There's been so many more conversations during my weeks lately, um, both you know, more formally counseling and, and conversations because everybody's going through these changes we're talking about, and it's really kind of tipping over the apple cart in families and relationships and jobs and, and everything. So these conversations are such a rich source of connection, and there's been so much that has been coming out of them that it has been informing the, the messages that I've been doing for the last, really, for, for months now. For the last eight weeks, we've been talking about presence. And so that was a series, but it was kind of an unplanned series. I started talking about presence, and then it just kind of built. And every week, there was something there that, it's, okay, here's another facet of it. Here's another aspect of it. And here we go. So trying to really just follow the leads that are presented to me just naturally, organically, in the week. And everything that I've been talking to, or just let me put it to everyone that I've been talking to lately, the subject matter, as varied as it is, seems to just keep relating back to presence. Now, maybe it's just because I'm looking through a presence filter right now because it's so much on my mind. And I've been telling you that I am absolutely convinced and have been for years, but it seems to be coming to a point right now. And maybe it's where we are as a people, as a nation, where everything is so disjointed, where people are not listening to each other, that presence has been coming to the fore as everything that we're about. If we can be present and if we can be aware of each other, everything changes. The nature of our discourse changes. Our conversations change. Everything changes. And so everything has been leading back to presence, and I'm realizing everything does lead back to presence. Presence is everything. And even if presence may be not everything, the idea here is you can't have anything that is meaningful in life without presence. Presence is the ticket in the door. Everything leads to and leads from our ability to be present to this moment right now, to let everything unfold. So, what the world needs now, remember that song? What the world needs now, love, sweet love. It's the only thing, there's just too little love. But guess what? You can't have love without presence. So once again, everything comes back to presence. Gotta be present. So, 
I had an amazingly significant conversation just a few days ago. And um, it's interesting, but you can't predict significance as you're moving into a conversation. You know, you just kind of show up to the conversation and, and, sees, and see what happens. But I knew that this was going to be an important conversation. I just didn't know how significant it would be for me. I haven't been able to get it out of my mind. I keep replaying it, and I keep ending up in that space that the conversation created in me. But I had to show up to find out just how significant it was. Some of you know that our friend Michelle Macheski was diagnosed with stage four uh, pancreatic cancer. And this is my first chance to be able to talk to her. We, it's only been a month or, or so since she found out. And we'd been texting back and forth, and we wanted to talk, um, but it just wasn't happening, and it kept getting put off. And I didn't exactly know why, but I think it was two or three days ago that she texted me early in the morning, and she said, she's so sorry that we didn't get together, but it was because of the chemo that she's going through. It's making her so sick that it was hard for her to plan anything because anything she planned, she thought it would end up being canceled anyway. But this was a pretty good day. You know, she had had the last round of chemo several days ago. She was scheduled for one the next day. Um, but this was a pretty good day. So I texted right back and said, well, how about this afternoon? Are you, is it still going to be okay? So we set up a time for the afternoon and we actually got on the phone with each other and were able to, to talk. And she was tired, she, but she was calm, and she was so poised on this conversation, it really kind of took me back. She was saying things very calmly that weren't calm at all in terms of what she's going through and, and what's been going on in her life. And after the conversation, and after I had a chance to process it for a day or two, I realized how much I wanted to be able to tell you all about it. And so I recontacted her and said, would it be okay? I know this is very personal, but would it be okay if I shared your story? And she came right back to me and she said, absolutely. You know, I said, I can keep it anonymous. She said, you can use my name. It would be an honor if my story can help anyone on their journey. She was eager to have this story be told. I was amazed at how this all started. Um, two months ago, she thought she was fine. And if you know Michelle, she's been a fixture here for years. I could set my watch by her every time she came in, because she came in early to go to Scott's Bible study on Sunday mornings. And so she was always here in time for that. So we were typically up here rehearsing the band, and she would come in on time every week. And she's just such a great presence all these years. And up until, what, five weeks ago, she thought everything was fine. She's a nurse, and so she thought everything was fine, but she started experiencing abdominal pains and some bloating, and finally it got so bad and wouldn't go away that she went into the doctor. And she actually, it was so bad that day, she went into the ER. Well, this is during COVID, so there's nobody in the ER room, and she can't take anyone with her. So she has to go in alone. She's in this ER waiting room all by herself, gets called in, has the test, the scans, whatever they did, and then she goes right back out into this waiting room, sitting there all alone, waiting for results. Doctor comes out and tells her, you know, you have stage four pancreatic cancer. There is absolutely nothing that we can do. There, it's, it's beyond being operable. And you have about two weeks to live, two months with chemo, if you decide to do chemo. And the doctor walks out and leaves her alone in the room by herself. I was so stunned, I had to ask her like four times, that really happened? 
that's what the doctor did? What hospital was that? I won't tell you the name, but, you know, what in the world? You want to talk about presence here? How is that present to what is being conveyed here? To drop that kind of bomb. I said, what did you do? She said, all I could do was sit there. You know, obviously she was in shock, but she's just sitting there alone. For She doesn't even know how long she sat in that room with nobody, just trying to process, trying to get her head around it. So finally she starts making phone calls, and she calls her brother and her sister. Her brother lives here in Southern California. Her sister lives in Pennsylvania, and it's her twin sister. The brother comes right over to the hospital and drives her home. They just leave her car in the parking lot, and he drives her back. The sister gets on a plane that night and flies out. So she has her brother and her sister around her. And they start making plans what to do, you know. She's thinking, what, to, what do I do now? Um, she has, you can imagine twins, have such a tight bond, even if they're 3,000 miles away. And she loves her sister and her sister's family. She feels so safe there. So the decision was made that she was going to go back to Pennsylvania and stay with her sister. So the, family, you know, the brother and sister get into gear. The, the brother sells the car and helps clean out the apartment, puts things into storage. She gets on a plane with her sister and, and goes back. And they take care of all the details. And um, she's there with her sister's family. And the family comes around her. And besides her sister, she has an Aunt Dodie that she says is like a mother to her that kind of helped raise her. And she lives there with her sister and with the younger children. And her nephew is expecting a child in December. And, um, and he lives with himself, with, with his wife. And, and uh, so she says, this is the place. There was no place else that she would rather be. She always goes back every chance to get to visit. And this is the place of connection for her. And even though she's there, She's not sure what she's going to do. Does she do the chemo? Does she not do the chemo? She wants to see the birth of her nephew's child. She would like to get through the holidays. And yet, she didn't know if she wanted to go through everything that chemo entailed. She's a nurse. She knows what the score is. She finally decided to go ahead and do the chemo to see if it could extend things long enough. But she was, it was made very clear to her the chemo is not a cure. It's only an extension. But she starts doing the chemo, and of course, it's making her sick and doing the. But she's hoping that it'll extend things long enough that she at least can get through the holidays. That's like her, her big goal that she kept talking to you about. I'm talking to someone that I've known for years. I'm listening to her talk. You know, if you've gone into a conversation like this before, it's like you have no idea what to say. What do you say? You know, what can you possibly give? to a person like that. So I'm just listening. I'm just taking it all in and listening. I've known her for years, yet in the back of my mind, I'm realizing I'm never going to see her again. She's not planning to come back to California. She's going to stay in Pennsylvania. I'm not going to see her again. And, and that was messing with my head in a way that was really strange in the conversation, just, just that knowledge as, as I'm talking to her. She may not live out the year. She hopes she does. And she said, beyond that, she realizes that even though it's supposed to extend her life, she could be dead at any moment. There's, there's no telling you know, where the disease is going to take her. And I'm just listening and listening for some kind of cue, some kind of clue for me to respond and how to respond and how to be present to her in a way that I can hopefully just leave her a little better than I found her. She told me of her anger. She told me of the depression that she's going through. She said she's been asking the question, what did I do to deserve to die at such an early age? 
who wouldn't ask these questions, right? She told me calmly about all the tears that she shed, but she, there weren't any tears on that, this phone call. She was very calm, you know, it's very poised. And we started talking about the stages of grief, of course, because she's going through them all and circling around, and, and she just had kind of a, you know, she had a basic understanding of the, of, the, of the stages of grief, but yeah, anger and bargaining and depression and denial, you know, all, everything on the way to uh, acceptance. She's going through all these things and cycling through and coming back, and it, it kind of helped her to just talk through some of that. She said that she was considering it from time to time just stopping the chemo because it was making her so sick. It was just so excruciating to go through the chemo. But then she knew she'd be dead so quickly, she thought, you know, is that really a form of suicide? If I knowingly stop the chemo, and then she felt guilty about the possibility of suicide. And we had to talk about that. Do you really think that's the same as suicide? You know? to stop taking medicines that are extending your life. And we, we talked through that and talked about the, the guilt that she's feeling. It's so complex. You don't think about all the complexities that someone goes through when they're put in a position like this. She talked about her fear of dying, of course. Why wouldn't there be fear of dying? We talked about, you know, what comes next? There's no way we know what comes next. We may think we know and we think theologically, but when you're in a position like that, that becomes a very real question. What comes next? She told me how angry she was at God. How could God do this to her? How could God let this happen to her? Where was God? She felt completely abandoned by God. She would try to pray to, to feel some connection with God, and nothing was coming back to her. And she just felt like nothing was there. Abandoned. No presence. No love from God. But then she started telling me about her, her family. She talked about her sister's home and the warmth of it. She talked about the feeling of belonging that she had every time that she was here, how much she loved the kids, her kids, and how much her kids loved her, and Aunt Dodie, of course, and the relationship that she has with her. She talked about the nephew who comes every week to come visit her because he doesn't want to, to miss seeing her, and he's coming over and visiting. And she talked about her sister, and how every single one of the family members wants as much time as they can have with her and not missing anything. And then she blew me away that said her sister wanted to sleep with her in bed every night so that she didn't miss anything, even if it were the moment of her death. She didn't want to miss it, so she wanted to sleep with her. The conversation kind of turned at that point. I asked what she expected to feel from God as a connection with God. I asked her what she expected to feel in terms of feeling God's love for her. And she was trying to make a connection. And what I was trying to point out to her, that the connection was already all around her. She was trying to make something happen with God. Her twin sister wants to sleep in bed with her every night so that she doesn't miss anything, not even the moment of her death. Where does that kind of love and presence come from? Where does it come from? The warmth of that home as she feels it, the serenity that she feels there, that there's no place else that she'd rather be, where does that come from? 
We say over and over here at the effect that we love because God first loved us. Do you know what that means, really? Do you know why that is a phrase that we want to keep repeating and drive deeper and deeper into our spirits? It means that our love is God's love. It means that God's love is ours. There is no love. There is no warmth. There is no connection apart from God. Every time you see love and warmth and connection, you're seeing God. Where else does it come from? It reminded me of the famous phrase or little passage from Teresa of Avila. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. That is so true for me. I am so convinced that that is true. That a felt connection with God is a byproduct of the presence that we have with each other. We can't separate the two. Our presence with each other, our presence with God, our love for each other, our love with God. And they don't need to be separated. We just need to look for God among the living, among everything that is around us. Remember when the women come to look for Jesus in the graveyard on Easter morning? What does the angel tell them? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do we seek God anywhere else but in the living reality of our lives and our relationships and our homes and our families and our friends? Everything that is so meaningful, everything that is so real, everything that contains the love and the connection, God is in the center of that. God is the reason for that. God is the first cause for that connection. And all our prayers for connection with God are answered the moment that we see God in each other, in creation and nature and in our moments. The prayers are answered there, not the way that we may imagine that they are answered. Michelle is living immersed in God's love in her sister's home. She just needed to learn to look across at her family for that connection instead of up. We are so conditioned to imagine relationships in a certain way. But all the relationships that we have are one relationship when it comes right down to it. The warmth of that home, the serenity that she feels there, it's all from God. In a way that is more intense than many of us will ever experience, hopefully me, maybe we'll ever experience. Michelle is living as that Hebrew bride that we talk about in here so often. The Hebrew bride who is betrothed and then the groom leaves again to build the mansion, to build the home. And she doesn't know when he's coming back. And it can be a year to two years before he comes back. And he won't be announced when he does. There will just be a shofar that's blown at the edge of the village in the middle of the night. And then the fun begins, the ceremony, the lifting up and the bringing. In that period of time, whether it's six months to two years, the Hebrew bride is living, trying to balance two, two realities. 
that any moment her life can change, that any moment she will be carried away to a new life, a good life, the life that she was meant to live, because she will be a mother and she will be the head of a household. And yet at that moment, also the life that she knows will end. And everything that she's ever known and everything that she thinks that she is as a daughter and as a member of her parents' home will end. And so with that sweet anticipation of something coming that will be good and the reality that we need to completely immerse, that she needs to immerse and be completely present and suck every moment out of of every moment that she has, every bit of relationship out of what she has. That's the balancing of realities. Israel was called the bride of Yahweh for that very reason, living in this space between birth and death, living this reality that we're all living in between the betrothal and and the marriage ceremony itself. The church is called the bride of Christ for the same reason, because this way of living, realizing that any moment this life ends and a new one begins, and to celebrate this life all the more because of it, even as we anticipate the change, that is the way we all should be living. Try to put yourself into Michelle's moccasins right now and realize the shortness of what she is experiencing and how that balance isn't theoretical anymore. It's right in front of her face. It's right there. This balance, this presence, this awareness is the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. It is literally heaven on earth when heaven and earth earth merge into one thing where we see the unity in the presence of all the diversity, but we see how it all connects. We see how God's love is the glue that holds everything together and can't be separated from every moment and everything that we experience. How does John put it? Take a look at 1 John. Chapter 4, verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. His love is completed in us. His love is fulfilled in us. When we love each other, that's it. God's love is there in us, perfected. Moving to verse 16, we have come to know and have believed that the love which God has for us, God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Do you know how significant that statement is? As God is, who God is, how God is, we are in this world as well when we are in that kind of presence and relationship with each other right here and now. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. No fear in love. Does that mean there's no fear at all? Does that mean that once we're experienced, we have experienced God's love, we know where to find it in each other? We know how to give it. We know how to receive it. That all our questions are somehow answered. That there's no fear at all anymore. Well, it certainly means we're not afraid of God anymore when we've experienced that kind of love and connection. certainly doesn't mean our questions are answered, though. 
And it certainly doesn't mean there won't be any fear at all. Michelle impressed me in ways that I can barely express in her ability to talk about her own death calmly, to talk about the realities of her experience, to be willing to share with me the realities of her experiences. But if she begins to see God's love and security in her family, does that mean that she's no longer going to fear death? I hear people of faith often say that they don't fear death anymore. I've said it myself. Have you? Don't fear death anymore. No? But until we're standing again in Michelle's moccasins, how do we really know for sure? How do you know when it's just theoretical? When the future still seems long? How do you know for sure what you will fear or you don't fear? I told you a while back that I woke up in the middle of the night with the pain in my chest and the, and the ache in my left arm one time. Well, it happened again not too long ago. I think it was a couple, couple months ago. And uh, wake up at that. Why is it always 3.30 in the morning when stuff like this happens? It's always 3.30 in the morning. You can imagine all sorts of stuff in the dark at 3.30 in the morning, let me tell you. You know, wake up and you feel this pressure on your chest and this dull ache in the arm, a little bit shortness of breath, you know, and I'm sitting there and I think, okay, is this going to pass? Is, just, is this just the garlic that I had for dinner? What is this? I don't really know. And you're waiting to see. Have you ever, remember, you know, any of you have experienced a, an earthquake, right? The first jolt and it starts. And what's the first thing in your mind? Is this the big one? Is this the one? How much is it going to go? How long is it going to go? How big is it going to go? And then it crests and goes down. It's like, oh. Okay, so that's, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm waiting. You know, do I wake up Marion? Do I call 911? What do I do? I get up, I walked around a little bit just to see how I was going. And, you know, it's not getting any worse, it's not getting any better, it's just sort of holding there. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to text my daughters. <laughs> and I texted my daughter, and I, I didn't tell them anything that was going on. I just told them what I would want to tell them if it was the last thing I told them. And I texted them. And, and then I went back to thinking. Is this it? And what would that mean? Did I actually fear death at that moment? I can't say that it was an active fear, but I'll tell you what, there was a lot of resistance to the idea. I realized how much I wasn't ready. I realized how much I wanted more time. I realized how much I still wanted to spend with my wife. You know, there was all that stuff. It wasn't theoretical anymore. At that moment, it was real. And then it crested and it went down. And yeah, it was the garlic that I had for dinner. It's like, okay. But it was, a, it was an interesting moment. And I was thinking of that moment as I was talking to Michelle because it's not the garlic that she had for dinner. It's not going to crest and go down unless there's a miracle. Yeah, we're praying for a miracle. Wouldn't that be something? But that's not her reality, and that's not what she can count on right now, what she needs to prepare for right now. But to blithely say that we don't fear death is not necessarily real or true, depending on where we are, depending on what's going on. It's the uncertainty that gets us every time, doesn't it? That we can't know certain things for certain there's a, a movie, and I just, I love this scene. I know I've told it to you several times, but if you haven't heard before, great. If you have, maybe it'll have new meaning. And it's a woman who just lost her husband, and uh, don't even need to go into the details, and she's talking to a priest, and she's just despondent, and she's wishing for death herself because she just can't get over the shock and the grief. 
You know, and he finally says to her, he says, there comes a time in man's search for meaning that he realizes there are no answers. There are no answers. And when you come to that horrible, unavoidable realization, you either accept it or you kill yourself, or, he says, you simply stop searching. And then he changes gears and he says, I have lived a blessed life. And yet, every night when I crawl into bed and I'm staring out into the darkness, I wonder, is this all there is? And she looks at me and she says, you wonder? He says, every soul on earth does. But then in the morning you wake up and you make up the coffee. And she says, well, why do we bother? He says, because you did. And you do. You did it this morning and you'll do it again tomorrow. And God, in his infinite wisdom, makes sure that it's just enough for us. It can't be really said much better than that. The certainty, the answers that we crave to to alleviate the fear that we have of the unknown are not there. There are no answers if certainty is the question. Do you get that? There are no answers if certainty is the question. So how do we carry on? How do we carry on living a life that is not certain for us? How do we carry on living a life that we know is going to end? How do we prepare for that ending without certain answers? It all comes down to presence. It's all about presence. The only way to prepare to die is to live life in full presence, to connect We need to be present to the coffee in the morning. We need to be present to our family. We need to be present to every person who crosses our path. We need to be present to Aunt Dodie and our twin sister who loves us more than her own fear of death. To be present with you at that moment, to not fear that, to to want to be present more than that fear. It all comes down to presence. Do you see that? Does that start to sink in? That God's promise is the life that we are given right here and right now. That God's promise is in this life and all the lives that we encounter. And the more present we are to life, the more we become convinced that all is well. That all will continue to be well whether we can see it at the moment or not. There is no no more certainty in life than the life that we are present to right here and right now. There's a a series that Marion and I were watching, and uh, we really got into it. And uh, it's over now. It was five seasons, and they actually ended it. And it was a period drama, 18th century, set in England. And the last lines of the last episode have stuck with me. And it's a parting scene. The main characters, husband and wife, are parting. And there's risk involved. He is going into harm's way, and she is carrying their child just in the first trimester. And with all that is at stake for them and their parting, they're trying to figure out how to do that. 
And it's all very dramatic, and it's all very romantic. And they're, they're standing on a windswept cliff overlooking the ocean, and the tall ship that's going to carry him away is on the horizon. And they're, they're you know, un believably beautiful in their 18th century garb and hair blowing about in these cinematic close-ups, you know, the way they do. But given all of that, the lines that they spoke to me had real meaning. He looks at her and he says, are you afraid? She says, of course I'm afraid. Every moment of every day and I, he says. But she says, we mustn't be. Where's our faith? Where's our gratitude? We're here. We're alive. We have blood in our veins. And he says, and the past is gone. Tomorrow doesn't exist. All that matters is now. And we, she says, two hearts, one beat. Can't ask any more than that. There isn't any more to ask. And that's it. You see? Faith. Gratitude. Here. Now. Alive. Blood flowing now. Two hearts. One beat in complete presence. You can't ask any more than that. There is literally nothing more to ask of life, of God. Look around you right now. This is your life. This is all of it. There isn't any more life than is here right now in this moment. Are you here? Are you present to it? If you are, you're with God. But for us to know this is our life in this moment, are we here? That's it. That's the presence. That's the love. Let's pray. Father, you are here. Help us to be here. This here, the here next moment and the moment after that, Help us to feel our hearts moving synchronously. Help us feel that beat. Help us feel a part of life in a way that connects us and convinces us that all is well. And even in the fear that we still feel, allows us to move through with the faith and the gratitude intact, with the trust in you intact. This is it. This is the stuff of our lives. Help us to see that every moment and not be looking for something else. Father, thank you for being exactly the kind of presence that we need. Thank you for never leaving or forsaking us with your presence. And help us more and more to learn to return the favor. We can only love because you loved us first, Father. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's all stand.